want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get more great investing content. If you're listening on YouTube, hit that like button on this video. In any other platform, your five-star rating and review are a great way to support the show. Thank you for your support. Today's episode is going to focus on the question of investing versus speculation versus gambling. What is investing? What is speculation? What is gambling? What are the lines between them? How do I tell the difference when I'm taking some sort of investment operation? And what should I do in thinking about these different categories? Why does it matter? Is this something that I should think about periodically? That sort of thing. So I was inspired to do this episode by a Twitter thread from one of the people I follow, 10K Diver, he wrote about this idea of investing versus speculation and how to tell them apart. And normally I agree with almost everything he writes up. He's very good at communicating his thoughts on various investing and finance topics. And he was certainly very good at communicating his thoughts on this one as well. And it was interesting in part because I actually found myself disagreeing with part of it. Even though it was a relatively minor disagreement, it led me to think that I should clarify my own thoughts on the differences between investing and speculation. And that is the purpose of this podcast episode. In part, I had thought I'd already done an episode on this topic, um, but I hadn't. So the big poll that I want to start out with is that I tend to disagree with Benjamin Graham's definition of investing versus speculation. It's not that Benjamin Graham didn't have a point or a major contribution in this area, but I think he had, um, he missed something. There was a mistake of omission that he left out in his definition, and that's what I want to dive into today. Before I dive into that specifically, I want to begin with a story um, about gambling that I think helps to frame some of this in a useful way for me. And so I'm not really into gambling. I don't gamble. Um, but there was one time that I believe it was last year, maybe a year or two ago, um, took a cruise ship. I've only been on one cruise, but I went on a cruise with a bunch of my friends and we were on this cruise and the cruise ship had a casino in the bottom or at least a casino floor where you could gamble if you wanted to. And gambling has never really appealed to me, but I thought it was an interesting idea to um, go to the casino and, and, and see what it was like. And I remember... Um, Going down to the casino floor, um, you had various slots, you had various um, blackjack tables, you had a poker table, 
uh, wasn't really in use. Um, you had roulette and you had a craps table and that sort of thing. And I was like very interested to see what it was like, see what it felt like to gamble some money. Because as an investor, I think sometimes it's easy to get in the mindset that you're investing or you're speculating, you're investing, and that investing, especially investing in stocks or investing in real estate or investing in some sort of asset like that is not gambling. But the average person, um, the average mainstream thought that I hear periodically stated is that investing in stocks is gambling. And so I think it's important for us to understand not only the definition differences between investing and gambling, but also to understand um, in a true real way what the difference feels like, what it, what it feels like to gamble, what it feels like to invest, and what it feels like to speculate. Because those emotions and those feelings do drive decision-making. So I was interested in doing this, and I think they had um, a poker tournament that was on the ship that I was kind of interested in joining. And I think the entrance fee for the poker tournament was something like $100. Um, and I remember very clearly, I talked to my um, spouse about this of, oh, I want to enter this tournament. I think the you know the entrance fee is $100 and you can win a free cruise or I think something like 1000 or $2,000 was the, um, the prize money. And basically you either won the prize or you got nothing. So there were 25 entrants or something and then you got $1,000 if you won. So it's a 10x, 10 bagger on your money if you won. Um, but you know, 90% of the entrants would, of course, end up with nothing. So the expected outcome, you know, if it was pure random chance who would win, would be that um, you would lose money by entering this tournament. But I thought it would be an interesting idea. But I remember so clearly, um, I was like, okay, so this is $100 to enter. I want to see what it's like. I could enter with some of my friends and that sort of thing. I was like, $100? The reaction was very clear. It was like, $100? Why would we... Such a waste, such a waste to waste a hundred dollars on something where we know that the value is going to go down. And I think she had such a good point because that's one of the key problems that you have with gambling. Your expected outcome when you make a gamble is negative. And so I think that's one of the key ways that's framed my thoughts around the idea of what's gambling versus what's investing. And that thought process is that gambling has a negative expected outcome and investing has a positive expected outcome. So that's, that's only one part of the diff- differences and definitions, but I think that's a clue. So if, if you're investing and in, if you're making a decision that has a negative expected outcome, then that, that's going to be a gamble. Um, or if you're making a decision with um, a positive expected outcome, it leans you towards potentially investing, but it could also be a speculation. So, you know, the, the story continues where basically, well, okay, I decided not to do that, um, but instead I went down and and we went to the blackjack table where we each started with, I think, you know, me and a couple of friends, we each started with like $100. Um 
with the intent. It's like, okay, well, play for an hour and we'll see where we're at. You know, maybe I'll make some money, maybe I'll lose some money, but it's not necessarily, even though each individual hand of my, um, of playing blackjack is going to have a negative expected outcome, I shouldn't necessarily lose all hundred dollars if I, you know, only gamble for an hour. And I think at the end of it, um, I was one of the best off in the group. I think I lost, um, $40 or something like that in, in an hour of time playing blackjack. I think one of my friends lost their entire hundred dollars. And I think the other one, um, lost 60 or something like that, or maybe lost, maybe lost a little less than me or something. It doesn't really matter, but I think it was interesting because I think it was so clear because I could wear on this as like this, like thought experiment. I was like, Oh, let's see how it is. Could be a little fun. And for me, it was okay. I'm going to, I'm paying what ended up being $40 for an hour of entertainment. Um, in an hour of entertainment, an hour of education. So that $40 was basically my fee for learning what this was like, learning the feeling. And um, I remember feeling frustration that there was so much chance involved that I didn't have control over the outcome, that there's nothing I could do to really influence the outcome of a game. Now, I recognize that blackjack is one of those games that you know, you could count cards if you train in it and that sort of thing. And so it has elements of what some might say is like stock investing, where you can learn about a company, you can do some research, you can try and get an edge. But at the end of the day, the edge is against you and there's a negative expected outcome. And it, and it certainly felt like that. I remember there'd be times, you, you know, even if it was only losing a dollar or two dollars or whatever the minimum bet was at this table, um, it didn't feel good and it, and it felt negative emotionally every time you lost money in that. And then the positives didn't feel that positive for me either because it was just so much random chance. So I tell this story to frame this discussion because I think it's important to understand that emotion. So those gambling emotions, um, some people are going to feel them differently. Some people get a bigger high out of the wins in gambling than I did. And some have a bigger low for the losses or lower lows for the losses. Um, it varies obviously, but for me, it was so much clear that there was nothing fun about this. I had no fun experience from this idea that I'm going into a situation where my expected outcome is negative, where the longer I play, the more money I should expect to lose. And that, I could have taken that $40 and put it into a stock that I liked and had a positive expected outcome. And it wouldn't have had pure chance behind it. Even though there is some luck involved in investing, it's not pure chance where you you have no control. So that's really the way I want to frame investing, speculation and gambling. So gambling has that negative expected outcome. So let's dive the rest of this into investing versus speculation, because I think it's a little bit more of an interesting discussion that has more people might disagree when setting the line between investing and speculation. So let's begin with Graham's definition. So I began this podcast talking about how I don't agree with Graham's definition, but what I do is I agree with the broad attempt that he tries to make here. So Benjamin Graham gave us our first clearly workable definition of investing versus speculation. And he defined investment as, an, and I'm going to quote him now from the Intelligent Investor book that he wrote, quote, an investment operation is one which upon thorough analysis promises safety of principle and an adequate return. Operations not meeting these requirements are speculative. 
And the end quote. So the, this whole book is about telling you how to be an intelligent investor. And he talks about separating investments and speculations because you could investments are in his view, more reputable. They're more something that he wanted to build a system around investments around that people could invest with a reasonable expectation of positive returns and that it he was trying to separate them from speculations or gambles and really set this off as um, a professional activity, something that you could do professionally, something that you could do in a reasonable basis to that is not purely random chance. So he was making this argument that it's not random chance. There are actions you can take to improve your outcomes. He does talk about speculations. Some are intelligent, some are non-intelligent speculations. And he says there are times in which speculating is reasonable. Um, but there's also times that speculation isn't reasonable. And so he wasn't trying to say that investments are good and speculations are bad. That's not the delineation that Benjamin Graham is making in The Intelligent Investor. What he is saying is that investments are something that's repeatable, something that is um, able to provide you with both safety of your money, so you're not expecting to lose your money, and a return is expected at on top of that. So you're going to have both an expectation that you won't lose money and an expectation that you will make money. And, and he really makes that differential because he talks about speculations in large degree um, will lack one of those two areas. But when I look at them, intelligent speculations, he would say, lack only one of those. So an intelligent speculation may lack you know, safety of principle, but it will have the expectation of a positive return. So you might have a positive return expectation, but there's a decent chance that you might completely lose your principle or have a deterioration in your principle. Um, and a principle is basically, for those who don't know what that word means, is basically the sum of money you start investing with. So if you start investing, if you invest $10,000 into a stock, that is your principle. The return is the money you gain on top of that. And if you lose principle, it's because your your value has declined. So... But an intelligent speculation might have that positive expectation of return, but lack the protection of principle versus a non-intelligent speculation or just a more, more general speculation might lack both. So you may lack both a positive expectation of return and lack protection of principle. And so that's where he's trying to differentiate between these. He's not saying never speculate. He is saying, though, that investments have this own extra level of status that you should aspire to as an investor. You're trying to make investments, not speculations, because investments have higher qualities which are valuable to you. So in Benjamin Graham's words, I see it as speculations having three tests. So basically, this is a test of exclusion. Investments must pass every test and speculations simply fail one of the tests. They can fail all the tests, but all the, they only need to fail one test. So speculation fails one of the tests of either promise safety of principle, number two, provide an adequate return, and three, made of thorough analysis. And so Tinke Diver in his um, thread on Twitter really discusses this. I'm going to link both my rebuttal, my Twitter rebuttal and Tinky Diver source thread because I think they're useful to read through if you want to read through them um, instead of or in addition to listening to this podcast. 
you can find that all in the show notes. But he critiques these as basically being vague, that this definition lacks imprecision. And I think that's a fair critique of Benjamin Graham. But I think the other piece is that Benjamin Graham leaves out um, some key areas, which I'll dive into. Um, But these three tests are very useful. And they are useful because he does capture the crust. Like number one and number two are incredibly important. Making investments that promise a safety of principle is very important to a successful investing career. Making investments that provide an adequate return is very important to a successful investing career. And then number three, the more vague one of, of thorough analysis certainly is a good starting point, but I think you can. I think I can provide a better definition um, that really explains what those should mean to you, um, and that you can take away going forward. So I want to talk about the rest of this is where both explaining a little bit more about what Benjamin Graham's definition is and what it means to me, and also expanding upon it with what I think are extra terms that are helpful. Because what I want you to be able to do when you leave this is I want you to be able to precisely define any operation that you do, any that where you put out money to be either investing, speculation, or gambling, and that by being able to define that, you'll be able to make better decisions. So let's start with the first category that Benjamin Graham talks about. And he talks about what he terms in his definition, promise safety of principle. So I think this idea of promise, um, especially around safety, promising safety, promising safety of principle, is critiqued in large part because, you know, people might say something along the lines of, oh, well, nothing in life is guaranteed. And that's certainly true. But Benjamin Graham's not talking about a guarantee. He's talking about protecting your principle, taking steps to protect your principle, and that even lacking a guarantee, that's okay. Because you can't get a guarantee, what you can do is you can reduce the odds of losing money. And so he's trying to encourage you to find ways if you're going to look at investments professionally. And I'm not saying in the sense as you are a professional, you do this full time. I'm seeing the sense of doing this in a systematic manner. If you're going to make investments with a proper system, that system should follow certain steps. And one of the steps that Graham really pushed and made a key part of his process that he encouraged others to adopt is to include a margin of safety. And that's the big takeaway that I have from his book. He talks about this concept of margin of safety. So I firmly believe that when he defines investments as promising a safety of principle, he's really talking about this idea of margin of safety and that your investments are investing if you have a margin of safety. So what is a margin of safety? My way of phrasing it or capturing what margin of safety means, and this is, you're going to hear me do this in multiple times, is I'm going to break it down into a simple question. And I think you can understand margin of safety as a mental model when you ask yourself the question, how much can go wrong before I lose money? There's a lot of different ways to define margin of safety, but it's generally this idea to me that margin of safety is how much can go wrong before I lose money. Now, the common way that margin of safety is described is margin of safety is the difference between intrinsic value and the price you pay for a stock. So if, for instance, if if the intrinsic value of a stock is $100 per share, 
and you buy the stock at $65 per share, then you have a margin of safety of $35. That's the general popularized way around margin of safety. But I don't believe this is what Benjamin Graham would really say um, because it ignores the underlying um, business acumen. I mean, it ignores the underlying business. And maybe if this is what Benjamin Graham would say, that's fine. It wouldn't necessarily be what I think Buffett would say. And it's definitely not what I would say, because I think what I've learned is that when you define margin of safety simply as a quantitative number of I bought it at 35% less than my intrinsic value calculation, it ignores differences between various business situations. Perhaps your intrinsic value is um, based upon the balance sheet. There's $100 in cash on the balance sheet, and so you're saying the company is only worth the cash on its balance sheet. Well, there can be difference between two different companies. Take two different companies that both have $100 on their balance sheet, and both are losing money. Well, let's say one company is losing $5 per share in cash every year. And so if you bought it at $65 per share, that's a difference of $35 between $100 intrinsic value and $65 purchase price. But what that difference is, is it's $35. Well, I think a better way to think about it is, okay, the company's losing $5 per share each year in cash. So that means I have seven years of margin of safety until my purchase price is breached. So the intrinsic value would reach my purchase price in seven years if the cash burn remains at this rate without it turning around. Alternatively, you have another company that also has a hundred dollars um also has a hundred dollars in cash on the balance sheet, but they're losing a dollar per share each year in cash burn. Well, instead of seven years now of margin of safety, maybe I have 35 years of margin of safety based upon that cash burn rate. Well, that's really useful to differentiate between the two. They might both have the same cash, and so you're valuing them on liquidation value, but the margin of safety is substantially different, or at least I would argue it is, because in one, you have seven years for the business to turn around, and the other, you have 35 years for the business to turn around. There's a huge difference between those in terms of this discussion of promising safety of principle. Which company is your principal safer in? I would argue it's company B, the second one, because you're losing less money quickly. Even though they both are valued the same today and you bought it at the same discount to value, you have that gap there. Another way that I like to think about this, a different example, is to ask the question that goes along, you know, how much can I go how much can go wrong before I lose money? You can rephrase that in many different ways, but one way to rephrase that is how many customers can this business lose before they are unprofitable? So let's not talk about an unprofitable company. Let's talk about profitable companies. So in in the first example, we valued a company based on its balance sheet, but now let's value a company based upon its earnings. Okay, so now let's say we have a company that's two companies. They're both worth $100 per share, and because both companies are earning $10 per share today. So we want to buy them at a price-to-earnings ratio of 10, um, and they're both earning $10 per share in cash. So I'm going to say they're worth $100 per share. And again, let's buy the company at a discount, and we're going to say let's pretend that our margin of safety is simply the discount. Well, now we're going to buy the companies at $60 per share. We're going to have a $40 per share gap between our intrinsic value of $100 and our price of $60. 
okay, so is our margin of safety $40 or is it something else? I would argue it's something else because what I want to address here is how much can they endure a drop in revenue before they become unprofitable? You see, can they sustain a 5% drop in revenue? Can they sustain a 10% drop in revenue? Can they sustain a 20% drop in revenue? I would argue a company that can sustain a 20% drop in revenue before going unprofitable has a greater margin of safety than a company that can endure only a 5% drop in revenue before they become unprofitable. Let's look at our example here. So we have those two companies. They're both earning $10 per share. They're both valued at $100 per share based upon those earnings. But now let's look at the difference. We're going to say that company A has a lot of, doesn't have a lot of operating leverage. So what happens is company A experiences a 10% decline in revenue, which means that they're also going to have a 10% decline in earnings. That's just how their business works. Their revenue and earnings closely match each other. So now next year, instead of earning $10 per share, they're going to earn $9 per share. And so the intrinsic value has dropped from $10, from $100 to $90. Well, we bought the stock at $60, so we're still okay. Now let's look at company B. Company B also experiences a 10% decline in revenue. But company B has a high fixed cost base and low variable costs. So what happens when they dec they have a 10% decline in revenue, their earnings actually drop by 50% instead of 10%. So company B next year, instead of earning $10 per share, is only going to earn $5 per share. So if we want to buy the, if the company is only worth 10 times PE, well, now, instead of being worth $100, which was our original estimate, they're only worth $50. Well, you paid $60 per share, so now you've lost principal. The intrinsic value has declined below your purchase price faster with company B than it has with company A. Why is that? If margin of safety is purely the price difference or the percentile difference between your purchase price and intrinsic value, it should be equal across companies, but it's not. Some companies are safer than others, and margin of safety needs to capture that. Margin of safety is not simply that quantified number. It's a general concept of what protects you from losing money. And I think that's where you need to think about it. You need to think about how much can go wrong before I lose money. What are those types of examples? Because many people will experience different, different experiences on that. If you want to have a more in-depth discussion on that, you can listen to my episode 30 on GameStop, where I go into my post-mortem on my GameStop investment, which I thought was really interesting because it's when I really developed this concept that operating leverage can hurt you because a small revenue decline can lead to a much larger loss in earnings. And that means that your margin of safety needs to take that into account. So I think that's helpful um, in terms of how things can go wrong. But I think there's also a lot of ways you can think about it. And I think if you want to learn more about margin of safety, you can also listen to episode 95, where I dive into how to build conviction in a stock idea. And I talk about margin of safety encompasses many different things. But in order to focus on our topic today, let's continue on to the next step 
in our definition of investing. So the second point that Benjamin Graham makes is that investments, quote, provide an adequate return, end quote. So again, I think here's one of the areas where I agree a lot with 10K Diver and his thread that I've been inspired for is that he says that this is a vague term, but I think it's an it's it's okay that this is a vague term because adequate is going to mean something else to different people. So for me, adequate return, what that means to me is that an adequate return is whatever your discount rate is, whatever your return is that you need to achieve your financial goals. So in episode 23 of the podcast, I discuss what's a good discount rate to use and what how to pick a discount rate. So feel free to listen to episode 23 if that's interesting to you. But for me, I determined that I want and need a 10% annual return in order to achieve my financial goals, which means that my discount rate is 10%, and it means that I consider a 10% annual return an adequate annual return. What this also means is let's bring it back to our definition. An investment operation is any operation that has an expected return greater than my discount rate. So any investment operation where the expected rate of return is greater than 10% is an investment, and any investment operation with an investment rate of return less than 10% is a speculation. You see, because now what I've done is I've defined gambling as expected rate of return of negative, any negative expected rate of return, negative 1%, negative 10%, negative 100%, those are gambles. Investments are anything that's giving me a rate of return expectation of greater than 10% because that's my discount rate. And a speculation is anything in between. So speculation starts at 0% and goes to 9.9%, rounding, of course. Um, So anything between 0 and 10% is what I would call speculation. Anything less than 0 is gambling, and anything more than 10 is investment. Now, before we get into all sorts of like, you know, problems and questions with this, this is not a definitive answer for everyone. What it is, is to to help you frame and understand things. For me, it would be speculative to buy something where I only thought the return was 6% because I need more than 6% to achieve my goals. But what about you? What if you only need 6% to achieve your goals? What if your discount rate is 6%? Well, then for you, an investment is anything greater than a 6% rate of return, and a speculation is anything between 0 and 6%. And if you only need a 4% rate of return, then investments can be 4%. But, I, but if you need a high rate of return, if you need a 10% rate of return, It would be foolish to say you're investing when you're buying a bond that has an expected rate of return of 2%. That's not an investment anymore. It's purely a speculation because the only way you can achieve your target rate of return of 10% is if the price of the bond changes. If the price of the bond were to be valued by other investors, or what I would call speculators, at a higher price, then maybe you can achieve your return based on changes in price. But you can no longer achieve your return simply on the cash flows, uh, which is what I wanted to dive into next. And so, well, I'm going to dive into that a little bit. One piece that I want to touch on is this line between speculation and gambling. Um, 
and I think it's useful because I, I spent a lot of time on this in previous um, discussions, which is why in part I thought I've already covered this topic. Gambling is what I call a negative sum game. Basically, the expected return is negative because there's some sort of loss in there that any time you play the game, you should expect to lose money. Speculation is typically more of a zero-sum game. So if your expected return is zero, what that means is that when you take all of the participants in speculations, there's going to be some winners and some losers. So it's not that the the expected rate of return is zero for everyone. It just means that across the board, the expected rate of return is zero. So when you buy stocks, that's different. Stocks are a positive-sum game. In general, when you're buying stocks, positive sum games allow investors to make money off of business profits, business performance. If I own stocks, I don't need anyone else to lose money in order for me to make money. My money is earned from providing valuable services and products to the market. It's not earned from taking from others or winning from others. Speculators win from others, and that's why I talk about bonds. If you buy a bond at a 2% yield and you expect a 10% rate of return, you can only bridge that 8% gap by someone else getting an 8% loss. And so you need a greater fool in order to have the return meet your expectations. And that's the speculative component. So, you know, I state that there's this... um, line between you know speculation and investing and that's not totally true i mean if you think about this on in terms of return line so on one end you have negative infinity on the other end you have positive infinity i'm going to say gambling's on the negative end and investing's on the positive end but speculation is more in the middle and what happens is you know i said that anything between 0 and 10% is speculative But speculations can also have an expected return greater than 10%. You see, because that 10% is not a bright line that speculations can't cross. It is a bright line that investments can't cross, but speculations can have higher rates of return as well. But they're zero sum. So I could have a speculation that has an expected rate of return of 20% per year, but in order for me to make 20%, I need someone else to lose 20%. That would be a speculation. But if I can make 20% and no one else has to lose money, then that's an investment. And so the, there's overlap between investing and speculation above that 10% line. But I have that bright line so that investments can't go below whatever my discount rate is. But you choose your discount rate. So I'm not trying to say anything you're doing is necessarily um, a speculation. But what I am saying is you need to think about this in terms of those in terms of discount rates, in terms of adequate return, in order to really define it. If you want to learn more about the um, positive sum versus negative sum, um, you can listen to episode 31, which is about buying stocks is not a zero-sum game. And episode 32 is that shorting stocks is a negative-sum game. So this really brings me to the key point behind the overlap of speculation and investing. And I, and I like to define it that the art of speculation is designed to profit from other people's losses, but the art of investment profits is from business cash flows. You see, 
I believe that an investment operation is one that is 100% independent of the future opinions of Mr. Market. Mr. Market's the idea that when you're investing in the market, sometimes people are a little um, get a little irrational and they offer you a company that is at too low of a price and sometimes they get irrational and they offer you a company at too high of a price and that you can buy and sell to this irrational Mr. Market and you can find ways when things are a good deal and you can sell when things are a bad deal. Um, the key point that Benjamin Graham's providing here is, is that you're offered opportunities in the stock market, not obligations. But when I see this, I see really that investments are justified solely on the future cash flows paid out to shareholders. So the way that you can think about an investment, and this is where I agree with both 10K Diver and Warren Buffett, Basically, an investment is a decision to purchase a business that depends only on two factors. Number one, the purchase price. And number two, that future cash flows of the business will be delivered to shareholders. So an investment is something where you can outlay cash and never, ever sell and still receive your adequate return. So if the stock market did not exist, if the moment you bought the stock, You could never sell it for the rest of your life, and your heirs could never sell it for the rest of their lives, and so on and so forth. And the only thing that could happen is this was a one-time decision. You bought this stock and could never, ever, ever sell. And by doing so, you achieve your 10% rate of return hurdle rate. That is an investment. But if you have to be able to sell in order to achieve your hurdle rate return, it's not an investment. It's a speculation. Now, that might be controversial to some people um, because a lot of investment, quote unquote, strategies rely on selling to other people. And I'm not opposed to selling stocks when the price gets too high. Um, But I think that that is a speculative component on an investment operation instead of an investment operation itself. Because you're speculating if anything about your investment requires other investors to agree with you or to agree with your assessment of the company, or to agree with you in the future. You have to achieve your investment return with zero market price appreciation or multiple expansion in order for it to be considered purely an investment. So if you can achieve your hurdle rate with no market appreciation, no multiple expansions, simply from dividends and liquidations paid out to shareholders, then it's an investment. But if you need the market price to change, or if your heirs need the market price to change, then it's not an investment, it's a speculation. And so this is important to really clarify though. Again, I don't hold every stock that I have forever, but What I do is I make sure that I can achieve my investment return of 10% without any market price appreciation. I want the company's earnings yield to exceed 10% either now or in the future. I want them to be able to pay me out dividends now or in the future that exceed my hurdle rate. They don't need to be paying them now. They don't need to be paying them in five years. But in the future, they need to have the capability to pay out dividends at a rate that would justify investing in it without the existence of a stock market. 
And if they can't achieve that, then it's not an investment. But if they can, I'm still willing to sell because let's say I buy a company at a PE of five. A PE of five is equivalent to a to a earnings yield of 20%. So if your earnings yield is 20%, that means you can potentially pay out 20% dividend yield on day one, and that that 20% dividend yield equates to a 20% rate of return. Great, I've exceeded my discount rate. Now, instead, let's say that they don't pay out a dividend, but instead reinvest the money into their business. And five years from now, their company has grown, the earnings have grown, and other investors have marketplace have noticed this. Now, the price to earnings ratio is not five, it's 20. So what's happened? Well, the investment or the stock has gone up 4x. We're going to assume no earnings growth here, even though I said it in that mention, just because it makes the math easier. But let's assume the earnings are constant, and it's gone from a PE of 5 to 20. That is a 4x increase in price over the course of 5, or roughly equivalent to a 31 or 32% annualized return. So was that investment or speculation? Now, the investment piece, 20% of that, was an investment rate of return. But the extra 12% from 20 to 32% was a speculative component. The important piece is not that you can't have price appreciation in your investment models. What I'm saying is that price appreciation should be in addition to your hurdle rate being met by purely the investment component. So I want you to buy, and what I look for is, is I like to buy earnings yields of 10% or greater that can also grow and can also have price appreciation because other investors recognize it's too cheap. That is an investment operation because it doesn't rely on other investors to recognize it, but other investors recognizing it is a bonus. And so that speculation is a bonus. And here is where we get into the square rectangle problem. So one thing that's taught to young children is that all squares are rectangles. Some rectangles are squares, but not all rectangles are squares. And I think the same thing can be applied to investments and speculations. All investments are speculations. Some speculations are investments, but not all speculations are investments. And I think that's how we can really tell the difference. So a key point that Tinkit ever brought up is that um, investments and speculations are non-binary, but they are exclusionary. There are things that can exclude something from being an investment um, and make it a speculation. But if it doesn't have those qualities, you can, it can be both a speculation and an investment. However, I don't think that an idea is 90% investment and 10% speculation or vice versa. Instead, I think investments are only investments if 100% of the stock price is justified by the future cash flows. They can also have a speculative component, but speculations almost always revolve around the idea of price appreciation in some form or the other. So you're speculating if there's some sort of change in price which you are expecting to happen that is needed to justify your investment operation. It's okay to invest with the hope of price appreciation, but you shouldn't rely on that completely. Your, your investment should be justified on the cash flows alone the price appreciation can be a bonus.
which means that buying a stock can be 100% an investment, but also have a 30% speculation for a total of 130%. But I wouldn't say that it could be 70% investment, 30% speculation. Then it's just 100% speculation because what happens is is you have something like Tesla where only 20% of the stock price maybe is justified by fundamentals or cash flows. It's 100% speculation because you don't have any margin of safety. There's no decline in cash flows that could protect your principal because it's already gone. So these issues are very closely related. So your key question here to summarize this aspect of investing for speculation is just ask yourself, is my purchase price justified if you or your heirs could never sell under any conditions? So this brings me to the final area that differentiates investors and speculators, thorough analysis. So if you haven't told already, I like to use questions because I think this is the easiest way to eliminate speculations from your um, lexicon and from what you're doing. So I think thorough analysis is best understood with the simple question, at what terms and at what price? Now, I don't know if this came about from Ben Graham or Warren Buffett, but I think one of them or both of them have used this question as a way to filter out investments. And only investments can answer this question. At what terms and at what price? So this is key because there is always a price that is too high at which any normally reasonable action is no longer an investment but it's purely a speculation. And this applies to all manner of well-accepted mainstream advice. And the one that I'm going to pick on today is the one 10K Diver brings up in his um, Twitter thread, and it's talking about something that is regularly recommended and I think is still generally a good idea. And it's this idea of dollar cost averaging into an S&P 500 index fund. So this is generally accepted as positive behavior that investors who don't want to evaluate individual stocks should consider investing in an index fund. And that they should do so by discount, you know, dollar cost averaging into that index fund. What that means is, let's say you save 10% of your paycheck every month, that paycheck, take you take money out of your paycheck, it goes into your 401k, it goes into your IRA, and you buy an index fund every month, once a month, twice a month, regardless of the purchase price of that index fund, and that is how you invest. The question is, is that behavior investing or speculation? So, Tinkid ever says that Graham's test would label our behavior as speculation, but he thinks it's reasonable to call it investing. And this is where I tend to disagree with him because I would stand with Graham in saying this is speculation. And it is speculation not necessarily bad speculation. In a lot of ways, it's probably intelligent speculation. It can be intelligent to speculate on the future of the U.S. economy. That might be a good bet to make, but I use the term bet because it is a bet. It's it's a bet that may have a positive expected outcome, but it won't necessarily have a positive expected outcome at all prices. You see, if you were to say, okay, let's make the general idea of what is the S&P 500 um, and what is it we're investing in? So if we're buying the S&P 500, we're buying the 500 largest and most successful U.S. companies. Um, sometimes they're not just U.S. companies, but 500 
large, successful, high-quality blue-chip companies in the United States, and you're basically making a bet on the future of the U.S. economy for the next 20, 30, 50 years. So do I think that the companies in the United States, the large successful companies in the U.S. are going to be better off 50 years from now than they are today, making more profits, more revenue, um, paying higher dividends, buying back shares, all that? I think that's a generally likely outcome, and that's a good bet to make. That has a positive expected value in terms of do I think that's likely? I'd say that's pretty likely. If we look 50 years, 50 years out in the future, that's pretty likely. And the cases where it's not likely or where it won't have occurred are cases where you may not necessarily care that the investment didn't work out. Stuff like nuclear war, um, having been invaded, a comet hitting the planet, all sorts of stuff. Um could be areas where the investment doesn't work out, but in those areas, you might not be alive and it might, you know, the, the price of your index fund may not be your biggest concern. So that's a, that's why it's generally accepted as mainstream advice. But why is it a speculation? Well, it's a speculation because you can't ask, answer the terms at what terms and at what price. At what price does it no longer make sense to invest in an index fund? Is it 10 times earnings, 15 times earnings, 20 times earnings, 30 times earnings, 40 times earnings, 50 times, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 times earnings? Does it still make sense to buy an index fund? Is it an investment to buy an index fund, the S&P 500 index fund, at 100 times earnings? I would argue no, it's not. Because at 100 times earnings, the S&P 500 is no longer a positive expected value over many holding periods that people would be interested in. Now, I think investing in the S&P 500 index fund is an investment if it's at 10 times earnings. And I don't think it's an investment at 100 times earnings. And between those numbers, I think it's less than clear. I think the key is, in order for someone to say they are investing and this is a relatively minor point. For most people, it's not going to matter. But in order to say you're investing by dollar cost averaging into an index fund, they need to have a description of their investing process. It doesn't have to be long. It could be one page that basically says what they're doing and why. You know, why the S&P 500 index fund? Those are the terms. Basically, you're investing on the terms. You're choosing an index fund. Why an index fund? Is it low fees? Say that. At what fee rate would you pay? What, what fee rate would you seek a new investment? Is it the specific companies you're betting on the U.S. market? Say that. Um, and then at what prices? At what price of that index fund are you no longer going to buy more share? At what price of that index fund are you going to stop dividend reinvestment? And at what price in that index fund will you sell the shares and put it in cash in the bank until you can come up with a better idea? You should outline that if you're an index investor, you should have a one-page, two-page, three-page document that outlines those questions and answers. At what price will you stop investing in that? Because it no longer makes sense. I'm not going to give you an answer of when that should be. Because that's not my category. I haven't studied it um, to say which prices make sense, which prices don't. I think 10 makes sense, and I think 100 doesn't. 
Um, but I think in between those, it, it can be less clear. I think 15 probably makes sense. 20 probably makes sense um, to keep, you know, PE of 20 probably makes sense still to invest in an index fund. But does 100 make sense? 100 doesn't make sense. 90 probably doesn't make sense. 80 probably doesn't make sense. It's probably somewhere between 20 and 80. Um, where it just doesn't make sense anymore to stay invested because the downside protection no longer exists. Are you really investing in companies at 100 times earnings, like large companies that don't grow? Is that really an investment or is that a speculation on price appreciation? It's, what, it's just worth thinking about. And, and I think one of the rebuttals that's common in this area is like, oh, well, the whole point of investing in the index fund is that they don't want to think about investments. It's like, sure. But usually they're putting their life savings in these investments. That might be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars that they have spent decades of their lives saving and investing and holding this money for their retirement, for their futures, to pay for their kids' college, whatever it may be. Their life savings are in these investments. I think it's reasonable to spend a week, two weeks, three weeks, thinking it through, writing down a one- to two-page document that outlines the terms and the price at which they will choose to buy the index fund. I don't think that's asking too much. I think it requires a little bit of research, a little bit of understanding of interest rates, a little bit of understanding of population growth rates, um, productivity growth, what those things are they think they will be over the long-term future, and what kind of returns they expect to receive. If it, it doesn't take a lot of research to do that. It's not areas I've studied, but I think those are the factors that would be involved. Population growth, productivity growth, inflation, um, those sort of expectations that kind of drive that. Now, as an individual stock investor, I don't consider those things because they don't affect my personal investing process. But if you want to be termed an investor versus a speculator, you need to define those things. And I don't think it's unreasonable. If you're going to make an investment plan for the next 40 years to spend two or three weeks thinking about those terms, writing down an investment plan and defining the, the boundaries. And I think it's pretty simple. You would basically have probably some limit at which you stop dividend reinvestment. Um... You know, let's say uh, you stop dividend reinvestment at PE of 35 or and maybe you stop buying, putting new um, dollar cost averaging in at a PE of 50 and maybe you, you sell the stocks when they get to a PE of 80. I don't know what the numbers are. You have to think about what they are for you. Um, but, but basically answer the question, what will I do with this index fund when the PE hits Exceed, P.E. ratio exceeds 35? What will I do when the P.E. ratio exceeds 50? What will I do when the P.E. ratio exceeds 100? And just outline that. It's a fairly simple question, but it, it allows you to be more robust in your process. And that's what we're trying to encourage. So perhaps if, you know, P.E. of 50, you stop adding money to the account. Perhaps P.E. of 80, you, you, you put it into cash or whatever and seek alternative investments. So, I challenge you to ask about your investments at what terms and at what price. And I think that's really key to understand the differences between investing, speculation, and gambling. And so what have we covered here today? What, what is my conclusion? I think the conclusion is, is that Benjamin Graham gave us the baseline of what to expect. But I think you can have a better investment a definition for an investment. So an investment is something that meets all five of the following categories. And a speculation fails at least one of them. So an investment, number one, utilizes a margin of safety. 
I think this is a better way of terming it than protecting safety of principle, but I think it's basically the same thing. Some people might argue with me, but but when Benjamin Graham says safety of principle, in that book, he spends a lot of the book talking about margin of safety, and that's what this ties into. So an investment utilizes a margin of safety, number one. Number two, an investment provides an adequate return, which I define as greater than 10% for me. And I think you should define what an adequate rate of return is in a quantified manner for you. Number three, the 10% hurdle has to be met solely on a fundamental cash flow basis. An investment will meet your hurdle rate solely on a cash flow basis, which means it requires no price appreciation and it requires no multiple expansion in order to achieve your 10% hurdle rate of return. You can still get extra return from other categories, other areas, but in order for an investment to be an investment, it must meet your rate of return simply on the fundamental cash flows, assuming you can't sell. Number four, an investment is a positive sum game. So I've talked about this. Investments are positive sum games. Speculations are zero sum games. And gambling is a negative sum game. So an investment is a positive sum game. You don't need to make your money by taking money from other people. You don't need to steal from other people. You don't need to have losers for in order for you to be a winner. Investments are positive sum games. You are a winner irrespective of how other people do. You're not causing losers to happen. You're not causing winners to happen. You're a winner because you're investing in a positive sum game. And number five, these ideas and investments are bounded by a specific range of prices and terms. Basically, there can be things that are investments at one price and speculations at another price. And it ties into these other categories. It can be because it, lo- it re- eliminates the margin of safety. It can be because it doesn't provide an adequate return anymore. It could be, it be- could because it ceases to be um, a positive sum game because of the terms have changed. But basically, investments are bounded by a specific range of prices and terms. And that if the terms change... It can, be an, it can no longer be an investment. And if the price changes, it might no longer be an investment. And so these are my five key categories for an investment. Number one, utilize a margin of safety. Number two, provide an adequate rate of return, which for me is greater than 10%. You need to define it yourself. Number three, the 10% hurdle has to be met solely on a fundamental cash flow basis. Number four, positive sum game. And number five, bounded by a specific range of prices and terms. I hope this episode has been useful to you. I think this idea of investing versus speculation versus gambling in some ways is an academic one. Does it really matter? I don't know. Um, But it's something people like to talk about, something people like to think about. um, And I think it's useful in the sense that investments are what you should aspire to. It's a more robust way of managing your money. It's a safer way of managing your money. And so if you try and focus on making investments instead of speculations, you can remove some of the emotional aspects. And I think your financial future is better assured because it can be done in a professional manner. And I'm not saying again that you have to be a professional, but it can be done in a professional manner when you make investments using this definition. 
There are times where speculations can make sense. There are things that are intelligent speculations that have a positive expected rate of return. You may be offered terms and prices that are very appealing on something and it might be worth taking even if you don't have a margin of safety because the expected return might be high enough. I'm not precluding those activities, but I think it's clear to understand when you make a decision, is it an investment or is it a speculation? And then, of course, I would avoid gambling altogether. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for today's podcast are available on my website at diyinvesting.org. So episode 105 and in the show notes um, on your podcast player. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get more great investing content and like this content either on YouTube. I welcome your feedback. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Trey Henniger. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.